Hello and welcome, beautiful history nerds. Glad you could join me. I'm your host and historian, Ali A. Alomi. As usual, before we get started, I just wanted to get the social media out of the way. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at AAOLMI and post your questions or follow along using the hashtag HeadOnHistory. This is your opportunity to send me anything you want, uh, questions, comments, character assassinations, things you liked, things you want to know more about. So, last episode, we set the stage for the coming of Islam. Today, I want to discuss its founder and the formation of the faith. We left our story with the failed invasion of Mecca by the Abraha in the year of the elephant in 570 CE. According to most historians, Muhammad was born roughly around this time, and that is going to be significant. In many ways, this can be seen as part of the broader myth-making that comes with uh, the stories and lives of prophets. So we're going to use 570 because most historians use it as the beginning of uh, Muhammad's uh, life. Centuries of trade and war had left an indelible mark on Arabia, and the Red Sea Wars were the last great reminder of a bigger game afoot. Muhammad was born into this world. He was born in a minor trading city of Mecca to the merchant family of the Banu Hashim in the larger tribe of the Quraysh. His father, Abdullah, died before he was born, and his mother, Amina passed away before he even turned six years old. This left a mark on young Muhammad's life. In the patrilineal and tribal culture of Arabia, Muhammad was vulnerable. He had no real guardians. His early life was sheltered by people in his family like Abdul Muttalib and his uncle Abu Talib. Later on, he would lose both of these guardians and would be left on the outskirts of society. Muhammad's experience as an orphan put him on the margins really early on. He was an outsider who had just enough connections through the Banu Hashim to be part of society, but always on the edge and never a full participant. By most accounts, he was a liminal figure, someone that people knew but didn't really interact with, nor did he have any social standing. While Muhammad was not a full participant in Arabian society, he was fully immersed in the religious traditions of the Mediterranean. At a young age, he participated in his family's caravan trade. At nine, he traveled with his grandfather to Syria, where he met a Christian monk. Now, Syria was a significant region for most traders in Mecca. While most of Arabia was far from the center of imperial consciousness, flitting on the borders of mighty empires, as a zone of proxy wars. Syria was an urban center. Syria was a country with sprawling cities. Syria was a place where traders from all over the world came and interacted. And more importantly, Syria was aligned with Byzantium. While in Syria, Muhammad and his caravan came across a hermit, a man named Bahira, who was also known as Sergius the Monk. Attested to in the early biographies of Ibn Sa'd and Al-Tabari, the monk invited the young caravanners to feast with him. As they moved to join him, he noticed something, that a cloud continued to follow and shade Muhammad from the desert heat. The monk interpreted this sort of miracle as Muhammad's prophetic future, as a sign of something to come. According to Ibn Sa'd, Bahira then warned Muhammad's family that he had to be wary of the Jewish tribes who would eventually betray Muhammad. The biographer Al-Tabari, on the other hand, claims that it wasn't the Jewish tribes 
that Bahira warned him about, but rather the Christian tribes. Now, this story is likely apocryphal, and we have no real evidence of it ever happening, and records that date this story come roughly about a hundred years or so after Muhammad's death. But that in of itself tells us something. It tells us how the nascent religion of Islam began to assert itself as an entirely separate tradition after the death of Muhammad. More importantly, it's also an attempt by historians, specifically Muslim historians, to retroactively explain the reception that Muhammad received. Why was the relationship between Muhammad and the Christian tribes and the Jewish tribes the way that it was. Now, as historians, we can read this as evidence that Muhammad fully participated in the religious traditions of the Mediterranean and late antiquity. He wasn't an outsider, but fully immersed in the Christianity, Judaism, and various religious practices around him. While the stories of his life indicate that he was illiterate, what we do know is that he was literate in the religions of the time. Muhammad's mission, therefore, can be seen as part of a religious dialogue that is taking place in that region at that time. Later, Christian polemics like uh, John of Damascus would corroborate this story, but he would reinterpret what happened not as Muhammad's prophetic career, but a sign that Muhammad was involved in Christian heresies. His association with Bahira would be used as an example that Muhammad was actually a Christian schismatic. We're going to revisit John of Damascus in future episodes because I think his account from the outside is significant here and tells us a little bit about how the religion of Islam develops. Now, Muhammad's experience as an orphan and an outsider shaped his message. This was a man who was interested in religions and spirituality, but who grew up in Arabia that was harsh and had a hard life. The disparity was evident between the classes. Merchants with deep connections to Persia or Rome had all the wealth, while those on the margins, uh, orphans, women, and smaller families, were left to fend for themselves. Muhammad's early reputation of a spiritual but fair-minded youth preceded him. It was related at one time that the Kaaba, the sacred shrine of Mecca, fell into disrepair. The wealthy and powerful tribes were unable to band together to fix it because they could not agree who would have the honor of replacing the holy black stone. Muhammad was called upon to mediate. He placed the stone on a blanket and asked each of the heads of the family to hold a corner so that they could lift the stone in unison. So impressed were they by his decision-making skills and his fair-mindedness that they asked him to lift the stone from the blanket and replace it on the Kaaba. This earned him the reputation of being trustworthy and al-Amin. It's significant because even his enemies considered Muhammad a trustworthy individual. Their opposition to him came mostly from what he preached, not who he was as an individual. There is evidence that Muhammad was likely part of the Hanif religious tradition. I discussed the Hanifs in the last episode. They were the Arab monotheists who were neither Christian nor Jewish, but saw themselves as the sort of spiritual descendants of Abraham's son by Hagar, Ishmael. In fact, they call themselves the Ishmaelites, and we're going to revisit this as well when we talk about uh, John of Damascus. The Hanifs often retired to nearby mountains to retreat, to pray, and to fast. In 595, Muhammad married Khadija, a widow roughly two decades his senior. Khadija was a wealthy and intelligent businesswoman. 
and the marriage was by all accounts a happy one. Muhammad ran her business for her, they had several children, many of whom died young. Khadija shaped Muhammad's adult life. She encouraged his spiritual tendencies, and though both remained on the relative outskirts of society, her as a widow who had broken the norm by becoming a businesswoman, and him as an orphan, together they would support one another and find solace with one another. Thanks to his wife, Muhammad had the freedom to take spiritual retreats, like his Hanif counterparts, and he was afforded the opportunity to engage with religious travelers and merchants alike. Most importantly though, through his wife, Muhammad had connections to Christianity, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, we mentioned that Muhammad was likely part of the Hanif religious tradition, and it was actually during one of these Hanif retreats in 610 CE that we hear he had his first revelation. According to religious accounts and Muslim historians, Muhammad was in the cave of Hira in Jabal al-Nur, just outside of Mecca, when he suddenly felt a presence, squeezing him tight. Then he heard a disembodied voice, Iqara, read, to which he replied, trembling, I cannot read. Again, the presence would squeeze him and ask the question, read, and receive the same response. Three times this happened, until finally the presence squeezed so hard, and words began tumbling out of Muhammad's mouth. Recite in the name of your Lord who creates, creates man from a clot. Shaken, Muhammad stumbled out of the cave only to see a mighty being with wings that spanned the horizon. That being said, I am Jibrail, an angel of God, and you, Muhammad, are his messenger. Muhammad rushed back home and fell into the arms of his wife. She consoled him. Muhammad thought he had become mad. He had become a kahan, one of those soothsayers possessed by the jinn. But it was Khadija's Christian cousin, Waraka ibn Naufal, that convinced him otherwise. After the initial revelation, Muhammad received nothing further. This period of spiritual silence is known as the Fatra, and it is claimed to have been a period of testing. The revelations start up roughly three years, two to three years later. Muhammad is reassured, and he is tasked with being a warner. Now, from a historian's perspective, we don't know how Muhammad got started in his prophetic career, but the story involving Waraka reassuring him again tells us that Muhammad's early mission was working within the early religious traditions already present rather than forming something entirely new. It was a Christian who recognized and named the phenomenon that he was experiencing, that is, prophetic revelation, and it was a Christian that he had connected to vis-a-vis his wife. Now, his upbringing and his environment that he grew up in shaped much of the early message of the Quran, which was the revelation he was receiving, and it was seen as a sort of third way for the Arabs, an alternative to the socio-political factions that had divided Arabia between the Sasanians and the Byzantines, between the Jews and the Christians and the pagans. In many ways, it was almost a direct response to the conflict of the Red Sea Wars and the effect that they had had on Arabia. It was a way of saying, we are no longer accept those old alliances that pit us against one another and instead forge a new community. Muhammad's early message and prophetic stories were couched in familiar language. 
most of the people of Arabia would have heard something similar in the pithy, rhyming, poetic verses that were compelling and not unlike the poetry recited by storytellers and kahins of the Bedouins. But it was the content that was both attractive and subversive. The earliest verses of the Quran all shared similar themes, a strict monotheism, a warning of the coming of the end of days, and the need for social justice and radical egalitarianism. All people were one before God in faith, that there was no tribal differences, there were no religious differences, that all were one. In this context, the popularity of Muhammad's message is pretty understandable. I mean, the earliest followers of Muhammad come from the same strata of Muhammad for a very reason. They found what he was saying attractive. And these people were women, younger sons, smaller families, and slaves. These early followers faced severe persecution. It was the elite Quraysh tribe of Mecca who viewed them as a threat to the social order and in particular a threat to the lucrative pagan pilgrimages and so began to persecute this early community. The followers of Muhammad being on the margins of society and without the normal tribal protections were particularly vulnerable. The slave girl Sumaya bint Hayat was one of the first to be killed for her faith. She was tortured by being locked into a water pitcher and forced to stand out in the desert heat with chainmail on. It was one of these during one of these grueling sessions that Abu Jahal, throwing at abuses at her, lost his cool and stabbed her with a spear. She died of her injuries. Another slave, Bilal, who was a black man born in Mecca, he was the second martyr. He was tied to stakes out into the desert heat and had stones placed on his chest. He was commanded to renounce his faith or have heavier stones put on him, and he asked for the heavier stones. The persecution of the followers of Muhammad led eventually to a boycott by the Quraysh against them, where they were refused goods, they were refused services, and they weren't allowed to participate in society. This boycott eventually led to the death of his beloved wife Khadija, because the followers of Muhammad wouldn't find food or resources, wouldn't have uh, things traded with them, they were unable to get money and make a living. The persecution was so intense that in 615 CE, the most vulnerable of his followers escaped Mecca and immigrated to Aksum, where they were received by the emperor Ashama ibn Abjar. Now, what's that little Timmy? Aksum sounds familiar? Well, you're right. It happens to be the Christian kingdom from the Red Sea Wars that we talked about last episode. So, once again, that's the reason why we discuss the Red Sea Wars. You get to see how it plays out in the beginnings of Islam. Now, the Quraysh sent people to fetch the followers of Muhammad, but after hearing the Quran recited, Emperor Ashama determined that the message of the Gospels and the message of the Quran were like two rays from the same candle, or at least this is what later Muslim historians tell us. So now again, let's ask ourselves, why is this story significant? Why are we told this? Why did later historians choose to record this event? On one hand, it clearly tells us of the persecution of the Muslims, and this can be corroborated by multiple sources. But more importantly, the Muslims taking shelter in a Christian kingdom tells us that though Muhammad's message was a sort of third way, it still associated itself with the previous religion. It was not a complete break. 
the fact that we have this kind of apocryphal story recorded by later Muslims talking about how the Gospels and the Quran are two rays from the same candle shows us that time and time again, Muhammad aligns himself with the previous religious traditions. Now, eventually, in 622, Muhammad himself and the last of his followers immigrate to the town of Yathrib. Yep, that is the same town that the king of Himyar traveled through in his journeys, again bringing back the Red Sea Wars into the formation of Islam. Yathrib was renamed into Medina, and the date of the Hijra, or the migration, becomes year one in the Muslim calendar. Muhammad became the chief of Medina, and he also formed one of the earliest constitutions, drawing together an alliance of tribes, both Muslims and non-Muslim alike. This alliance formed the basis of the early Muslim community. Not all confessed to the same faith, but they all recognized Muhammad as their leader and as a prophet. This community included Christians and Jews who were not seen as distinct but part of the community. From Muhammad's association to Waraka through his wife's uh, connection uh, to his alliance in Medina, Muhammad envisioned a community of allies that were dedicated to monotheism and establishing a just society. And he was less interested in the confessional faith of individuals. All right, let's take a quick break for a rapid fire round. How did Muhammad find Bay? How tall is Diz? This is a lot to take in. What should I know? And why are there so many Muhammads and Ali's among Muslims? All right, so how did Muhammad find Bay? And by Bay, I mean Khadija. They were actually introduced to one another when Khadija saw young Muhammad as a merchant carrying out his deals. She was taken in by his honesty and she proposed marriage to him. So in every single way their relationship was very unorthodox here she was a businesswoman she was a you know a divorced woman 20 years older than him or so um, and she proposed marriage to him in every way this is unique and probably the most significant of muhammad's marriages he would have many other after her but he was monogamous to her for most of his life how tall is Diz? Um, i have measured him he is at five foot two there is a lot to take in. What should I know? There is a lot to take in. All you need to know is that Islam is shaped first and foremost by the circumstances of Muhammad. The Red Sea Wars, the conflict that he experienced, the, the fighting and infighting within society that he saw, along with his own stance as an outsider, as an orphan, all shaped his desire to forge a new community, a community that would put aside those old alliances, those old alignments, and come together to create a just society that would take care of orphans, that would help the poor and the needy. And you need to understand that this new community wasn't exactly the Muslim community we think of today. Not everyone there followed Islam literally. Instead, there were Christians and Jews and Arab monotheists. The only commonality was their mission and their acceptance of Muhammad as their leader. So this alliance is really important to understand, and it is shaped by the historical circumstances. Now, why are there so many Muhammads and Ali's? And apparently Muslims just lack creativity. They keep naming their kids Muhammads and Ali's. But as one who happens to have the name of Ali, I fully endorse the name all right, back to our story. After Muhammad travels to Medina, the conflict doesn't actually end. It's not a happy ending. The Meccans pursue him and his followers. Now, the first time that the followers of Muhammad and the Meccans meet in battle, they don't actually fight. 
contrary to kind of visions of Islam and bloody jihad, they exchanged verses with one another. That's right, the very first battle was a rap battle. Now, of course, there were later fights between the two groups, from the Battle of Badr, in which the Muslims won, to the Battle of Uhud, in which the Meccans won. But most significantly was that after all that conflict, Muhammad made a really interesting tactical decision. He announced that unarmed, him and his followers would make the pilgrimage back to Mecca. This was a momentous event. Here they were, unarmed, going into the arms of their enemies. He had tactically put the Meccans in a tough spot. If they slaughtered all the Muslims, they would be denounced by the entire region of Arabia. All the tribes would rise up against them. If, on the other hand, they allowed the Muslims to enter into Mecca, they would have lost their whatever political power they had. And so the Meccans sent an emissary, and after much negotiation between the Meccans and the followers of Muhammad, it was agreed that the followers of Muhammad would not enter Mecca that year, but the year following. This was signed in what is eventually called the Treaty of Hudabiyah. It was a major political victory for Muhammad. It was a treaty of non-aggression, and it gave Muhammad the time to draw more allies to his side because they saw it as a victory for him. Now, the Meccans eventually broke that treaty when they attacked an allied tribe of Muhammad's, and so Muhammad mobilized his followers. He retook Mecca in 630 CE with 10,000 troops. Muhammad was magnanimous in victory. He forgave his old enemies and he dismissed past grievances. Muhammad died only a couple years after that, having united much of Arabia under his standard. Muhammad's life and the early community is different historically from the religious narrative we come to know about him. Contrary to popular belief, the early community was less about conversion or even what faith you followed, but rather was united in creating a society, one that was envisioned in Muhammad's revelations, a society dedicated to feeding the hungry, protecting the orphan and the widow, and united in a sense of having a singular deity. It didn't matter whether you practiced all the tenets of Islam, this new emerging religion, whether you were a Christian or a Jew, as long as you followed Muhammad in creating this society, as long as you were part of this group, this alliance of tribes that broke away from the former and old alignment, the old order between the two empires to create something new, you could partake in the vision of Muhammad. This third way was a promise. It was a promissory that said, the old order is done. It is not Christian versus Jew. It is not Sasanian versus Byzantine. Instead, it is justice versus injustice. It is a community that rejected the violence of the old order that eventually becomes jahiliya, reinterpreted as ignorance in the Islamic narrative, and instead opts for a new society, forging a new order that puts the vulnerable back into the center of society, in which tribal affiliation no longer alienates, but rather all are united in a sense of fraternity.
All right, we're going to end this here for now with this new community forging a new alliance out of the old order. Next episode, we're going to talk about what happens to this community after Muhammad dies and how this early alliance starts to really take shape and become the religion of Islam as we know it. We're going to talk about the conflicts that come after, the division between the Sunni and the Shia, so be sure to stay tuned. If you are interested in further reading or knowing about this particular time period, I have a few books that I would recommend. I highly recommend Martin Ling's Muhammad's, one of the earliest biogra English biographical works on him done by a British convert. It compiles all the old biographical accounts from Ibn Ishaq, Al-Tabari, uh, Ibn Hisham, and it retells Muhammad's story. A historian's approach, I would highly recommend Karen Armstrong's Muhammad, a biography of the Prophet. Um, she also has a kind of follow-up, updated, edited version of that, which is Muhammad, a prophet of our times. She's a brilliant religious historian, and she takes all the old sources and combines it with uh, historical contextualization. So I would recommend Karen Armstrong's books. Finally, my final recommendation would be Fred Donner's Muhammad and the Believers. This is a really good historiographical approach to understanding what that early community is. So it's less a biography and much more a focus on what the community was that Muhammad was uh, building. And in many ways, it's a response to kind of the older uh, revisionist approaches to Islamic history done by Patricia Crone and Michael Cook. So definitely read Fred Donner's book, really, really interested. All three of these books combined, I think, will give you a, a good solid foundation on what happened uh, in the early Islamic period. That's it for now, my friends. Thank you for joining me, for taking this journey through the beginnings of Islam, and hopefully you will tune in next week. Stay smart, my beautiful nerds. Mm -hmm.